Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here at uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Uh, I'm Sue Tansky. I'm standing in for Jim Sargent to introduce my friend, Matis Morgenstern. Uh, and guys, thank you all for your bravery. I know the weather's getting bad out there, and so this is a little lighter, but you guys are the intrepid New Englanders, so thanks for being here. And welcome to anyone watching remotely as well. Uh, Matt is going to speak about the role of mass media and tobacco and alcohol use in adolescence, as you can see up here. Uh, he has no financial conflicts of interest. He reports that he does not to intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. He attests he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And at the end of the presentation, we will be taking questions and answers, and anyone watching remotely will have an opportunity to ask questions as well. Uh, there is CME credit. There's a form that will be filled out, I believe, outside. So please fill that out if you're looking for credit. Uh, and um, you can get the requisite points on your your credit. So uh, Matis Morgenstern has joined us he, for the year. He's here on sabbatical from Kiel. Uh, Jim Sargent, as many of you know, uh, was on a sabbatical in 2008-2009, and uh, he got to work in Kiel with Matt and the research group there. And Jim is very good at bringing together phenomenal collaborators, and uh, we are very, very happy to have Matt with us this year and his lovely wife and daughter. Uh, Matt has done a lot of research on tobacco and alcohol use in adolescence and its intersection with media, and it's a natural, perfect collaboration with us. He got his PhD from the University of Munich, and he's been at Kiel since... 2008. Oh, he's been at Kiel since 2008, which is where Jim did his sabbatical. So, uh, again, uh, I give you Matt Morgenstern, and uh, please ask lots of questions because it's a great topic. Matt? Yeah. So we'll turn this on. I hope everyone can hear me. I thank very much, Sue, for the uh, nice intro, and I hope I can match up to this intro. Um, when there's one thing that cognitive psychology has teached us, and it is that you will only be able to follow me for about 12 minutes without getting distracted. So I will try to prevent your blood from only going into the digestive system, also with some pictorial um, diagrams and with ways of the presentation, as I hope. I also have here a funding disclosure slide. This, the data I present here were funded by the German Ministry of Health, the European Commission, the DAK Gesundheit, this is a German health insurance company, the Medical Research Council in the UK, and the National Institute of Health. My visit here is funded by the Max Kate Foundation in New York. And I do not have any financial conflicts of interest. I do not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. I attest that I'm not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. <laughs> when I start a talk, I always have to start with that because no one knows where Kiel is. You might know or you definitely know where Germany is. Germany has 16 federal states and one of them is Schleswig-Holstein, here in the north. And Kiel is the capital of Schleswig-Holstein, directly at the Baltic. What is IFT Nord doing? We have a state-approved training in psychotherapy. We train in behavior therapy and behavior medicine. We have a clinic for psychotherapy. And we also do projects, applied research and prevention. And we are mainly in the field of substance use and health behaviors. A short preview of the, today's talk, I will have four bullets. The, I will talk about behavioral risk factors and how we study them. I will talk about commercial advertising for tobacco and alcohol, and I will also talk about smoking and drinking in movies, and then conclude with some preventive implications. When I have doubts about what I'm doing. I'm just picking up these kinds of slides, telling us something about the so-called actual causes of death in Western countries. And what you can see here from these slides 
is that this cake here, two-thirds of this cake, is related to lifestyle variables, poor diet and physical inactivity, smoking, and alcohol. When you follow these authors, there's a high potential also for the prevention of chronic diseases based on healthy lifestyle. This might be, from an economical point of view, might be the even more important point, the prevention of chronic diseases, given our demographic development. 90% of cases of type 2 diabetes, 80% of cardiovascular disease, 50% of strokes, 35% of cancer. So I don't have to tell you, I guess, why tobacco and alcohol are problems. So just a quick reminder that it is a risk factor for more than 40 non-communicable diseases, most strongly associated with cardiovascular diseases, cancer, and respiratory diseases. And given the high prevalence of alcohol use worldwide, the burden of disease is actually similar to the one for tobacco, most strongly associated with cardiovascular diseases, cirrhosis of the liver, cancer and neuropsychiatric disorders. In addition here, also, you have to see the intentional and unintentional injuries that happen during the influence of alcohol and the enormous social costs of alcohol use disorder in families, but also for the individuals. So when we talk about behavioral risk factors, we would say that tobacco and alcohol use is a risk factor for disease. But it's, this is actually not what we are studying in our group. We are not studying the influence of tobacco and alcohol use on disease, but we are studying the risk factors that lead to tobacco and alcohol use in the first place. So this is what the talk is about today, the risk factors of tobacco and alcohol use. We follow basically a, psycho -psycho, a biopsychosocial model meaning that there are biological factors, psychological factors, and social environmental factors that influence tobacco and alcohol use. We are not studying biological factors, not so much because they are not interesting or they don't exist. We are just very interested in studying things that we think can be more easily be changed. So we are looking at this most of all the social environmental factors. The biological factors are the phenogenetically old factors. They might be hardwired, hard to change, but this might be a bit different for the social environmental factors, which have changed recently in our development, and we have not really been adapted to these social environmental changes. We also study, of course, psychological factors, most of all because they are not really so easy to be separated. Most of the time we study them in terms of potential confounders, but we also do trials where we try to change psychological states of individuals. <clears throat> the basic assumption of our work is actually that tobacco and alcohol use are learned behaviors and that the learning process usually starts in early adolescence. This is why we focus our research on the, this group, the early adolescent group. And the question is, what influences the learning process? There are a couple of predictors of adolescent tobacco and alcohol use. A very important one is the country where you live. So you can look at these kinds of maps. This is the so-called alcohol atlas. And you see here different colors going from very light to this uh, you know, yellow greenish to a dark green the rosé and the dark red. So the dark red is the highest consumption in terms of liter pure alcohol. You find this here in Russia and the Ukraine, Moldova. These are the countries with very high um, alcohol consumption. You see Germany is in the rosé here, and the US would be in the green, <coughs> less in terms of pure alcohol. This. There are also regions you can see where there's almost no alcohol use. You might already consider why that is, but it's not completely consistent. There are some countries like Uganda, for example, um, they have very, very high alcohol use based on a kind of gin product that's just very popular there. 
You can also have these maps for tobacco. You also see there are a lot of changes or differences worldwide in the consumption. This is cigarettes per person. Um, and you see here that the US and Germany are more similar in this regard. And you have, again, the regions with high consumption and regions with very low consumption. So the country where you, do, where you live um, is an important predictor of your tobacco and alcohol use. There's also good evidence that the price and the availability of tobacco and alcohol use is a predictor also for adolescent um, use. There are personal factors that are related to tobacco and alcohol use. Sensation seeking is a personality factor, self-control. Also gender is, uh, there are gender differences in tobacco and alcohol use. Socioeconomic status is important for tobacco use more so than for alcohol use. And also the consumption attitudes of the direct social environment of the peers, parents, and siblings are very strong predictors of adolescent use. And what we found out, not we alone, but what has been accumulated evidence over the last decades is that also media use is a predictor of adolescent tobacco and alcohol use. And we, I will focus a bit on this predictor here in my talk. Media use is highly prevalent among adolescents. You can see this here. This, these are data from Germany. Um, what you see is the minutes per day of media use for different media. These are magazines, video, these are newspapers, books, CD, MP3 players, radio use, internet, TV. You can say the same words in English. And what you see here is the total amount in hours from the 1970s to 2010 in a Day. So there's actually, maybe besides sleeping, nothing else that our uh, adolescents do more than using media in a day. Also for the 3 to 13-year-olds, uh, we have a 93 minutes per day TV use. The effects on cognitions, emotions, and behavior have been studied in the social sciences for quite some time. They, uh, media are a significant platform for social, social learning, especially movies and TV series video games also, but now we also have social media. Of course, you learn about a lot about behavior in these media. However, the effects of media are generally difficult to study due to its ubiquitousness. The assumption is that mass media, when it's about media use in tobacco and alcohol, the assumption is that mass media communicate information about tobacco and alcohol for example, about the frequency of use or the effects of use or the likability of these um, behaviors. This communication about tobacco and alcohol can be intentional or unintentional. We have a clear example of an intentional information about tobacco and alcohol. This is commercial advertising. But we also have examples of unintentional information about tobacco and alcohol. And this is the use of these products by actors in movies and television. doesn't necessarily have to be unintentional. There are examples of paid product placements and paid smoking. Um, but we assume that most of the alcohol and smoking in movies is not directly aimed at communicating about tobacco and alcohol. It's more used in. So let me give you a brief summary, because we already have the 12 minutes, so you might already starting slipping away from me. A brief summary of the main points I made here. Tobacco and alcohol use are learned behaviors. The first use usually occurs during adolescence. First use is strongly determined by the social and material environment. And media are a significant environmental factor. This, this is the brief summary. We can skip that part. I just learned it in a 
training in didactics, and I found actually it's interesting, but I didn't know that we are on program. This is a 60 seconds break for you mumbling with your neighbor about what you have heard, but we will skip that because we will bore everyone that is online here. It is just for bringing your attention back on track. So let's talk a bit about tobacco and alcohol advertising. There are two terms you might know or not know. There is a distinction between above the line and below the line media or advertising. Below the line media are less traditional. They are not in so much in mass media and they focus on specific target groups. Example would be sponsorings, promotions, event marketing, viral marketing, also brand stretching. Brand stretching, for example, is the use of brand names for non-tobacco or alcohol products. And this is a very interesting type of advertising, but it is even more difficult to study the effects of these advertising than the above the line, the classical mass media um, advertising, which is already work enough. We, I will here in this talk focus on the above the line um, advertising. An example in Germany would be billboard advertising, as you see here in this picture. And we also have still tobacco advertising in theaters before movies. This is an interesting picture. I like it very much. This is a bus stop in Germany. They have these here. And it is the bus stop in a, in a town which is the public health department. So <laughs> it is, this, this is really a nice photo. I like it very much. So um, these are the kinds of places where there is tobacco advertising in Germany. And you can guess who is the one that uses use, uh, public transport the most. These are the ones going to school. One point you have to consider when studying advertising is what is advertising actually affecting? And I would like to phrase it in, is it the size of the piece of the cake? So brands do marketing for hiring their market share, or is it actually the size of the cake that is in, influenced by advertising? So from a public health point of view, this side here, the size of the cake question, is the more interesting one than the size of the piece question. So we have mostly have quite unspecific outcomes, like if it is contributing to the initiation of alcohol use in general or to smoking, not so much in really in brand shares, which is also interesting, but not in this sense. What also what might be interesting from a conceptual level is differentiating between immediate and cumulative effects of advertising. So what is an immediate effect? You all know or might have something like looking at a sports show in television, see an advertising, go to the fridge and take out a beer. This is an immediate effect of uh, advertising. The cumulative effects would be the change in cognition and emotion based on a lifetime socialization with these stimuli. And it is also important from a research point of view, because when you study immediate effects, you would definitely do an experimental study about it, because it would be the best design for um, to decide on causality. But when you study cumulative effects, what we are trying to do, it's not that easy using these kinds of designs, because it is hard to imagine that you can randomize people into two different life conditions, so to say. So what we do, or what we mostly do, are observational studies. <laughs> and you can also do on a population level, you can do these time series analysis. So what is the empirical evidence? I talked about the decades of study of these influences. And there's a Cochrane review on the effect of tobacco advertising on smoking behavior. It includes 19 court studies with more than 30,000 adolescents. Um, and uh, our studies are in this review. It's also, there's also a recent review about the longitudinal effect on, from alcohol advertising on alcohol use. It's a bit little, what, Less cohort studies here, but still 30,000 adolescents that have been um, studied. So the question is still, we have a lot of evidence about the relation. So 
Is it a causal relation? Does advertising lead to these behaviors? So it is actually not possible to show this within one observational study, but there are a set of criteria you might be uh, familiar with, the so-called Hill, Bradford Hill criteria, for uh, judging the likelihood of a causal relationship. So it, the, the criteria are temporality, strength, there's a dose-response relationship, if the relationship is consistent, specific, if it is scientific plausible, and if you can exclude alternative explanations. I will focus here on the specificity of the relationship because this is something that we looked at in our studies. Show you an example study. We show where we present our lessons, these kinds of pictures, still pictures. Every brand information is removed here. And we ask him, how often have you seen this? And we ask him, what is the name of the advertised brand? And what you see here is on the left side, there's an alcohol ad. On the right side, there's a non-alcohol ad. This is for T-Mobile. And then you can look at different advertising exposure. This is now, first of all, for different uh, products. This is Krombacher, a famous German beer. 95% of the, this group, it is, these are 12-year-olds. Will, um, this will come on the later slide. 95% have seen this advertising once, 55% more than 10 times, and about a third could identify the brand. And this is Jägermeister. This is also a, um, this is a liqueur brand. This is Marlboro. What you can see here is we have a considerable higher dose of alcohol advertising in Germany than tobacco advertising because it can still be present in TV. So you can already see here that um, exposure is lower, what you would expect for Marlboro Lucky Strike advertising. And then you have products here. This is a chocolate bar. Every kid has seen this ad. <laughs> so this is a relation here, uh, a regression. Um, and it is the prevalence of free alcohol behaviors <coughs> regressed on the exposure to alcohol ads. And we find these very, very clear linear relations for ever tried alcohol, also for current alcohol use, and also for pinch drinking frequency. This is the, the dashed line. So you see here, this was 3,400 kids with a mean age of 12 and a half years. So we included in this study a couple of confounders that are related to alcohol use and maybe also to this um, exposure. And this, these are a couple of variables. You, you don't have to go through them in detail. But I want to show you this one, which might be especially interesting, the exposure to non-alcoholic appetite. So why is that? When you show that there's a relation between alcohol, appetizing exposure, and behavior, you're actually only showing that kids who have a lot of exposure in general to media have a higher alcohol use. So the interesting question is, what happens if you put this into this, into the equation? What you can see here is the adjusted odds ratios for the three outcomes, ever drinking, current drinking, and binge drinking. And the blue ones are the odds ratios for the predictor of exposure to alcohol ads and the green ones, which is simultaneously in the regression model uh, that for other ads. So you clearly see, you almost see a preventive effect here, small for other ads on binge drinking. You can also do a quite similar analysis for smoking. And you see here, uh, it should be smoking, uh, smoking ads, of course. Uh, <coughs> higher odds ratio for tobacco ad exposure. And there's no relation to smoking from non-tobacco ads exposure. We were able to follow these kids up for 30 months to see if um, this relation could hold. So we predicted daily smoking and established smoking, but only on those that were never smokers at baseline. So who started 
smoking based on this uh, these um, advertising exposure. And we found here that each additional 10 tobacco advertising contacts increased the adjusted relative risk by 30%. This was a huge effect, um, uh, though um, it is based on a lower sample or a smaller sample than the initial because we only looked at the never smokers. So a little bit theory again. How can advertised effects be explained, actually? I didn't talk about that yet. There's a very early model, the so-called AIDA or AIDA formula. This is here, not a typo, the 1898. And it is actually um, assuming that advertising is a four-step process which goes from attract attention to interest to trigger desire to the actual purchase. This has not been a model that has a good empirical foundation, and it couldn't be validated very good. But what it has founded is the so-called hierarchy of effects models, which is, are still the most the dominant theoretical models for um, advertising effects. So when you look at these reviews that try to figure out which are the most common models, they also have these hierarchy of effects models. And the discussion is actually about if thinking comes before feeling and doing, or if thinking and doing comes before feeling. And I will now also show results that, that you could think that feeling is the first thing and then is doing and thinking is the last thing. So, but what is all in common are these hierarchies uh, of um, effects. So what is mean, meant by think and feel in these models? So it is this stream that advertising influences attitudes towards the brand product. The attitudes are changed. This is called the utilitarian effect. And then it is assumed that advertising changes the emotions of the recipient directly. This would be the hedonic effect. And when you look at the utilitarian effect, you have something that you find actually in almost all psychocognitive models. This is a so-called two-path model. So then there's kind of a central processing that is really where the attributes of the advertising are really thought through. And there's a peripheral processing, which is processed with very low involvement and it's actually using only the peripheral cues, not really the information in the alcohol, in the ads. The question is, of course, is conscious, or of course, I don't know if of course, but the question is, is conscious processing needed at all? So when you look at the psychological research in the last 20 years, you can say it is actually a reinvention of the unconscious processes, the automatic processes in human behavior. And one of the, the early work is uh, related to this man. It is um, he, it's Bob Zions, he's pronounced. And he wrote a paper about um, the preferences that need no inferences. And he was famous for an effect which is called the mere exposure effect. What does it mean? The mere exposure effect means that people tend to develop a preference for things merely because they're familiar with them. You might know this also from music. There's a, everyone knows this. You hear a song for the first time, you hear a second time, you find it's better. And it is a strategy that might be evolutionarily very adaptive um, to, uh, uh, that can explain this mere exposure peak. But what Bob Science showed was that even subliminal exposure can produce these shifts in attitudes. So even if people are not aware that, we're, that they were exposed to, stimuli, to stimulus, they change their attitude to uh, that stimulus. One of his famous sentences was, decisions are made with little to no cognitive process. We make judgments first and then seek to justify those judgments by rationalization. So uh, this might be one way how also these, um, these uh, advertising effects work. We try to, we did not really show a mere exposure effect, but we try to approach this empirically with our studies. What we did is we correlated the exposure, so the times a student has seen the ad 
with the liking of the ad. So we found a very, very strong, positive relation between exposure and liking. And then, the next step, we tried to get rid of that effect. So we put everything in that could explain this relation between exposure and liking. What we found that we could only explain 40% of that relationship with all the variables that we had. So the, in the rest of 60%, this is measurement error, of course, and this is unmeasured confounding. But it might also just be an indication of if you've seen something a couple of times, you start, you start to like it more. So I will also come to a similar but a bit different branch of this research, which is handling smoking and drinking movies. And the question was, I already mentioned that, if this appetizing, if this picture here is appetizing for tobacco and alcohol. And basically there have been two questions. How does it affect non-using adolescents? And the other one is how does it affect using adolescents and ad adults? So what means, what is the reaction of smokers, for example, on seeing smoking in movies. But I will now here focus on the effect of the non-using adolescents. So an example study is a longitudinal survey with two waves in a one-year interval. And we were able to do this in six European countries, in Germany, in Iceland, Italy, Netherlands, Poland, and UK. So we had a quite large sample here of 16,551 students with a mean age of 13 years. And first of all, we needed an exposure of these on-screen tobacco, um, which is a bit harder but this than for uh, advertising, but this is also the more um, interesting way of studying it because it is less reactive. You cannot really ask students to report their exposure to tobacco and alcohol in movies because they just don't know and they don't remember. So um, this is a very, very simple uh, way of presenting uh, this uh, method of doing this. Uh, but basically it is that students report only the movies they have seen and in a parallel string, these movies are content-coded. So there are people here in this um, building that do this now for 15 or 20 years. So um, this is really a huge job that they do. And it's basically for calculating the number of smoking and alcohol scenes that kids are exposed to to a sample of movies. So the cross-sectional analysis, this is here an example for alcohol use, showed, of course, differences between countries, which is based on many factors. The most dominant factor is that there's different amounts of smoking in the country samples of movies, and there's different amount of movie watching in countries. So the higher amount, for example, in Iceland, is that watching movies is a very common or a more common uh, leisure time activity than it is in um, other countries. But overall, in these movies that were used here, there was a mean of 4,613 uh, alcohol depictions that were seen by students. And we used this here to relate that to their alcohol use. And we found, this is here the total effect, uh, and you see here on the scale that these are um, also, again, quite large effects on uh, lifetime binge-ring, a positive relation. And it was significant in five of the six uh, country models. And we adjusted for a couple of variables again. It was here age and gender, family affluence, school performance, TV screen time, sensation seeking, drinking, the social environment. So the, these are um, curves uh, where these... Um, effects have been statistically controlled for. And again, from this, from theoretical perspective, the, sense of the specificity of the effect is again an interesting variable here. 
And what we did is we included both the exposure to movie alcohol use and the exposure to smoking, to, to on-screen smoking, both in the model. And it turned out that only the exposure to alcohol use predicted the alcohol, actual alcohol use, and the exposure to on-screen smoking did not. We could uh, replicate or further work on these results by following the kids up. And we looked at um, about 10,000 baseline never smokers and also 10,000 baseline never drinkers. And we questioned who of the students would initiate smoking in this interval. So it was 70% of the total European sample that initiated smoking, and it was 22% that initiated binge drinking during this um, interval. We, liked, we wanted to predict these two figures. And we were able to do so here. This is uh, the bar chart for smoking. So when you divide the exposure to movie smoking in quartiles, you see a 13% initiation rate compared to a 20% initiation rate in the ones that had the highest exposure. And similar figures here for binge drinking initiation, we had a 17% initiation rate in the group with the lowest compared to 26% in the highest quartile. So the last point I want to come to are the preventive implications. So when we see that there is a risk factor, a very likely risk factor, what you do about that. And if you look at the potential goals, the prevention, prevention goals in terms of exposure, two goals would be, on the one hand, the reduction of exposure, and the other one, which is more complicated and less studied, is a immunization against exposure. You might know, be aware of this separation in prevention measures, which separate into population level and the individual level. And on the population level, these goals could work out with advertising bans. Of course, this is the most straightforward way of dealing with this. Uh, and here, this is a bit more complicated, where you actually can ban movies, but. Um, you might restrict youth access to movies that have a lot of smoking and drinking in it. And on the behavior change side, there could be programs to enhance media literacy in children and parents. And another way of immunizing uh, against exposure might also be done via counter-appetizing. I will show a quite interesting study that we did here in the later slides. So what about the advertising exposure reduction? There is indeed empirical evidence that advertising bans lower consumption on the population level. This is done with time series analysis. These are not really um, um, experimental studies. And what I said or what I've shown is in these all these graphs that you've seen now, that there is a dose-response relationship. So theoretically, also partial bands should have an effect, but it has not shown yet, really, that partial bands have an effect. But theoretically, lowering the dose should be effective. It is very likely that content matters. However, no to little empirical evidence. This is actually the reason why I'm here for the year, because um, I'm trying to figure out what about the specific contents that uh, the kids are exposed to? And a very open question is how we control the unconscious processes uh, of um, advertising. I'm not going out for this right now. So what about the movies? These the advertising bans do not affect movies. But as I mentioned, you could change the A ratings and air times. And you could also educate kids and parents. This is kind of a... Um, repetition of what I've said. What about the parents? This is an interesting uh, analysis um, on the effects of parental movie restrictions on teen smoke initiation. So what happens in those kids where the parents allow them to 
watch movies that are rated R compared to those that are never allowed to do so. And you see here, there's a quite considerable effect on this parental restriction. So it's not studied here that the mechanism is the lowering of the dose, but it is a likely mechanism that, that um, should be studied in further. And counter-advertising, you, you know, uh, definitely, you know, the Truth Campaign, which has been very successful, especially here. Um, but um, in Germany, there have also been efforts doing counter-advertising that was very, very um, scar uh, scarce. But what we did is we tried to figure out if, these, if, if you can't detect effects of these counter-advertising in through a one-time contact. In fact, we didn't believe, actually, that this would be the case, that you could show that. Um, but we were lucky that one of the theaters in Kiel was collaborating on that. So we did a four-week study in a, a Kielian theater, and we had a spot, I will show you that. It's not even a very good spot, but it is one that was shown in, in Germany, and then it was back in, the, back in the cupboard. But we wanted to see if this could affect the uh, cognitions and intentions of the audience. So we finally made it that in a four-week um, study period that 4,000 people were willing to fill out a one-page questionnaire after they've seen a movie, which is not the thing that they maybe like to do. Um, and there were two different conditions. The one was a condition where there was an anti-smoking spot before the movie, and in the control condition there was no spot. So it is this here, you can see. We, we tried to figure out if it's brilliant, it is working. So I already mentioned it might not even be the best, and it, it is not an adolescent spot, but, and it is in German. So she said, I stopped smoking. So this is what, what she said. This is a this is a, a spot from the German Cancer Aid, which uh, was distributed, I think, between 2006 and 8, um, and you see this is a very short spot. And then we asked the um, movie viewers if they have noticed smoking in the movie, in the movie they've seen afterwards, and was very interested, in, interesting, insbesondere in the 10 to 70 year olds, that they were, they noticed the smoking in movies more often um, then the control condition, which was very um, interesting. And here, this is the approval of smoking in movies. So they could rate on an 11-point scale if this was okay that they were smoking in movies or if it's not okay. And we indeed found a significant, it's not a large thing, and it's a question of its practical relevance, but it is, uh, was fascinating to see that we had a higher mean okay rating of the smoking movies in the control group compared to the intervention group. And we also asked about the general opinions about smoking. Um, so they could rate it. They think smoking is very bad or very good. What you see is most people think that smoking is not good. Uh, and they are right with that. Um, but we found a difference, uh, which was um, uh, significant um, in the intervention and the control group. So a summary of my, um, uh, of my talk. I'm just in time for your questions. The use of tobacco and alcohol belongs to the most significant behavioral health risk factors of our times. Frequent contact with tobacco and alcohol in screen and other media increases the likelihood 
of initiation among adolescents and might also contribute to retention and lack of cessation of tobacco and alcohol use. Didn't show you the evidence of that. Decreasing the influence of this factor seems possible, but it's highly dependent on policy decision-making. Thanks very much for your attention. So we've got time for questions, and uh, I just want to make a quick note. Uh, Matt didn't talk about one of the methods that he used, where he showed the pictures, where he showed you a picture of the Jägermeister ad with the moose, but it didn't show identify the name, and it had the, the animal, the little dog with the wheels. That was a T-Mobile ad. That methodology has been brought over to us, and our group has been using it, and we've actually brought it to um, the, this huge national path study. So, so Matt has single-handedly changed the way we assess advertising amongst youth populations and adult populations. So um, it's pretty, it's it's a really impressive thing that he's been able to do. Is we call it cued recall, and uh, it's it's really a remarkable change in the way we've done everything. So questions for Dr. Morgenstern. No blood left. No blood left. <laughs> Some kids look at these advertisements and they start smoking or drinking. Some don't. What's the difference between the ones that do and don't? I mean, I've been watching that stuff forever. I'm not a binge drinker these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is, um, so there is indeed discussion about is it the ones that have a lot of risk factors, other risk factors, and then it is added, and it makes like, this is the drop that missed it, and, or is it actually the ones that have very, very low risk in terms of their social environment, and uh, also the country they live in, and all the other risk factors I mentioned, and so this is one that is very important for them. It actually turned out for, we are studying that, we are not really concluded on that, that it might be especially the intermediate risk kids. So that, Sue, I think, invented this nice swing, swing water uh, uh, adolescence, uh, which might fit quite well. So it is a contribution of, or it adds up, obviously, and interacts with other risk factors, which might not have been present in your case, luckily. So I can't really tell you in terms of, okay, show me a kid, I give them a questionnaire, and I determine his smoking or drinking career. Not in this sense. These are all likelihoods and probabilities that we are um, working with. So it's not really like, this is the risk factor that brings this result. Uh, I mean, that's the, actually the basic idea of risk factors in general. What types of educational programs do you think would be most effective with healthy kids? There's uh, a study published recently on the D.A.R.E. program in the United States and how is that ineffective at urban drug use? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate about these school programs and how they should be um, uh, done. Um, and there are also examples of effective strategies. In the case of alcohol, that is the so-called Strengthening Families Program, which has a quite broad, uh, also community-level um, approach. But when, we, when your question is related also to including media exposure on that, um, there have been attempts of teaching kids to um, process this information in a different way. And this might be, uh, it is a suggestive approach, I think. But we are not really, I think there's no study that has really shown that you can really immunize kids from the effects of movie or, or drinking. But still, I mean, when I'm talking about media effects, I'm not really saying that this is the only way to prevent tobacco and alcohol use. There might also be others which are more based on knowledge and attitude change towards the use itself, which most of the, um, uh, of the curricula actually do. They're not focusing on media. So um, yeah, it is not, um, 
there's no clear evidence that there is um, this one way of, of uh, implementing these kinds of programs. I'm curious, do you see cultural differences in the expectation that drinking is a part of a normal reaction? Um, you mean it's, okay, can you repeat your question? From your time here as opposed to on the continent, do you get a sense from the media that, or, that there's an impression that drinking is more or less uh, an expected part of a family meal? <laughs> I mean, what I definitely notice is that, that you have even more alcohol advertising on TV than we do, and I thought we already have a lot of it. Um, but I come from a disturbed drinking culture, which is called, the German drinking culture is called a disturbed culture because we don't have norms about that. What is, what is normal? This is, you have in Europe at least a north to south gradient on that. And we are in about the middle, so we don't know what to do about it. <laughs> and in the South, there might be, for example, a clear social norm of adding alcohol to a meal, but they have also clear norms about drinking amounts, which we don't have in that sense. And uh, my clear, uh, but this is then anecdotal um, <laughs> evidence, my clear um, uh, view here is, that it is much less common to drink alcohol to meals here than it is in Germany. So, but um, there are, um, of course, there are, there are differences in alcohol use in different cultures. I showed you these maps, um, and there, um, this also relates to different drinking norms in, in cultures. Yeah? Uh, no, uh, I don't think that has really been studied yet. But I mean, we are still in in um, studying the effects of e-cigarettes on uh, long-term smoking behavior, but also on health. So when you remember or when you remind the thing I showed you about the risk factors, of course, you could already start at the very first thing, what brings kids to initiate that. I mean, we had this uh, colleague in Hawaii that has this impressingly, from the research perspective, impressingly uh, high rate of e-cigarette use in Hawaii. So we would actually, this would be interesting studying this. I'm not sure if there's really been more advertising there for these products than it is here. There's really only advertising for e-cigarettes in Germany is, is a really rare thing. So uh, it is presented, of course, po at the point of sale. There you have advertising, but it's not really something you will be easily detect when watching TV. So it uh, might be a little too early to call, but it is it would be an interesting thing to study, I agree. Okay. Thanks.